Chapter Forty Four of the Fortunes of Glencore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Andrus. The Fortunes of Glencore by Charles James Lever. Chapter Forty Four: The Subtleties of Statecraft. It was not till Sir Horace had smoked his third cigar that he seated himself at his writing-table. He then wrote rapidly a brief note, of which he proceeded to make a careful copy. This he folded and placed in an envelope, addressing it to His Grace the Duke of Cloudsley. A few minutes afterwards he began to prepare for bed. The day was already breaking, and yet that sick man was unwearied and unwasted, not a trace of fatigue on features that, under the infliction of a tiresome dinner-party, would have seemed bereft of hope. The tied-up knocker, the straw-strewn street, the closely drawn curtains, announced to London the next morning that the distinguished minister was seriously ill and from an early hour the tide of inquirers, in carriages and on foot, passed silently along that dreary way. High and mighty were the names inscribed in the porter's book. Royal dukes had called in person, and never was public solicitude more widely manifested. There is something very flattering in the thought of a great intelligence being damaged and endangered in our service. With all its melancholy influences, there is a feeling of importance suggested by the idea that for us and our interests a man of commanding powers should have jeopardized his life. There is a very general prejudice, not alone in obtaining the best article for our money, but the most of it also, and this sentiment extends to the individuals employed in the public service and it is doubtless a very consolatory reflection to the tax-paying classes that the great functionaries of state are not indolent recipients of princely incomes but hard-working men of office up late and early at their duties prematurely old and worn out before their time something of this same feeling inspires much of the sympathy displayed for a sick statesman a sentiment not altogether void of a certain misgiving that we have probably overtaxed the energies employed in our behalf scarcely one in a hundred of those who now called and left their names had ever seen sir horace upton in their lives few are more removed from public knowledge than the men who fill even the highest places in our diplomacy he was, therefore, to the mass, a mere name. Since his ascension to office, little or nothing had been heard of him, and of that little, the greater part was made up of sneering allusions to his habits of indolence, impertinent hints about his caprices and his tastes. Yet now, by a grand effort in the house, and a well-got-up report of a dangerous illness the day after, was he the most marked man in all the state. 
the theme of solicitude throughout two millions of people. There was a dash of mystery, too, in the whole incident, which heightened its flavor for public taste. A vague, indistinct impression, it did not even amount to rumor, was abroad that Sir Horace had not been fairly treated by his colleagues, either that they could, if they wished it, have defended the cause themselves, or that they had needlessly called him from a sickbed to come to the rescue, or that some subtle trap had been laid to ensnare him. These were vulgar beliefs, which, if they obtained little credence in the higher region of club life, were extensively circulated, and not discredited, in less distinguished circles. How they ever got abroad at all, how they found their ways into newspaper paragraphs, terrifying timid supporters of the ministry by the dread prospect of a smash, exciting the hopes of opposition with the notion of a great secession, throwing broadcast before the world of readers every species of speculation, all kinds of combination. Who knows how all this happened? Who indeed ever knew how things a thousand times more secret ever got wind and became club talk ere the actors in the events had finished an afternoon's canter in the park? If, then, the world of London learned on the morning in question that Sir Horace Upton was very ill, it also surmised, why and wherefore it knows best, that the same Sir Horace was an ill-used man. Now, of all the objects of public sympathy and interest, next, after a foreign emperor on a visit at Buckingham Palace, or a newly arrived hippopotamus at the zoological gardens, there is nothing your British public is so fond of as an ill-used man. It is essential, however, to his great success that he be ill-used in high places that his enemies and calumniators should have been, if not princes, at least dukes and marquises, and great dignitaries of the state. Let him only be supposed to be martyred by these, and there is no saying where his popularity may be carried. A very general impression is current that the mass of the nation is more or less ill-used, denied its natural claims and just rewards. To hit upon, therefore, a good representation of this hard usage, to find a tangible embodiment of this great injustice, is a discovery that is never unappreciated. To read his speech of the night before, and to peruse the ill-scrawled bulletin of his health at the hall door in the morning, made up the measure of his popularity and the world exclaimed think of the man they have treated in this fashion every one framed the indictment to his own taste nor was the wrong the less grievous that none could give it a name even cautious men fell into the trap and were heard to say if all we hear be true upton has not been fairly treated what an air of confirmation to all these rumors did it give when the evening papers announced in the most striking type 
resignation of Sir Horace Upton. If the terms in which he communicated that step to the Premier were not before the world, the date, the very night of the debate, showed that the resolution had been come to suddenly. Some of the journals affected to be in the whole secret of the transaction, and only waiting the opportune moment to announce it to the world. The dark, mysterious paragraphs, in which journalists show their no meanings, abounded, and menacing hints were thrown out that the country would no longer submit to, heaven knows what. There was, besides all this, a very considerable amount of that catechetical inquiry, which, by suggesting a number of improbabilities, hopes to arrive at the likely, and thus, by asking questions where they had a perfect confidence they would never be answered, they seemed to overwhelm their adversaries with shame and discomfiture. The great fact, however, was indisputable. Upton had resigned. To the many who looked up at the shuttered windows of his sad-looking London house, this reflection occurred naturally enough. How little the poor sufferer, on his sick-bed, cared for the contest that raged around him, how far away were, in all probability, his thoughts from that world of striving and ambition whose waves came to his door-sills. Let us, in that privilege which belongs to us, take a peep within the curtained room where a bright fire is blazing, and where, seated behind a screen, Sir Horace is now penning a note, a bland half-smile rippling his features as some pleasant conceit has flashed across his mind. We have rarely seen him looking so well. The stimulating events of the last few days have done for him more than all the counsels of his doctors, and his eyes are brighter and his cheeks fuller than usual. A small miniature hangs suspended by a narrow ribbon around his neck, and a massive gold bracelet adorns one wrist. Two souvenirs, which he stops to contemplate as he writes. Nor is there a touch of sorrowful meaning in the glance he bestows upon them. The look rather seems the self-complacent regard that a successful general might bestow on the decorations he had won by his valor. It is essentially vainglorious. More than once has he paused to read over the sentence he has written, and one may see, by the motion of his lips as he reads, how completely he has achieved the sentiment he would express. Yes, charming princess, said he, perusing the lines before him, I've once more to throw myself at your feet, and reiterate the assurances of a devotion which has formed the happiness of my existence. That does not sound quite French, after all, muttered he. Butter, perhaps, has formed the religion of my heart. I know you will reproach my precipitancy. I feel how your judgment, unerring as it ever is, will condemn what may seem a sudden ebullition of temper. 
but i ask is this amongst the catalogue of my weaknesses am i of that clay which is always fissured when heated no you know me better you alone of all the world have the clue to a heart whose affections are all your own the few explanations of all that has happened must be reserved for our meeting of course neither the newspapers nor the reviews have any conception of the truth four words will set your heart at ease and these you must have i have done wisely with that assurance you have no more to fear i mean to leave this in all secrecy by the end of the week i shall go over to brussels where you can address me under the name of richard bingham i shall only remain there to watch events for a day or two and thence on to geneva i am quite charmed with your account of poor lady g though as i read i can detect how all the fascinations you tell of were but reflected glories your view of her situation is admirable and by your skilful tactic it is she herself that ostracizes the society that would only have accepted her on sufferance how true is your remark as to the great question at issue not her guilt or innocence but what danger might accrue to others from infractions that invite publicity the cabinet were discussing the other day a measure by which sales of estated property could be legalized without those tiresome and costly researches into title which in a country where confiscations were frequent became at last endless labor don't you think that some such measure might be beneficially adopted as regards female character could there not be invented a species of social guarantee which rejecting all investigation into bygones after a certain limit would confer a valid title that none might dispute lawyers tell us that no man's property would stand the test of a search for title are we quite certain how far the other sex are our betters in this respect and might it not be wise to interpose a limit beyond which research need not proceed i concur in all you say about g himself he was always looking for better security than he needed a great mistake whether the investment consist of our affections or our money physicians say that if any man could only see the delicate anatomy on which his life depends and watch the play of those organs that sustain him he would not have the courage to move a step or utter a loud word might not we carry the analogy into morals and ask is it safe or prudent in us to investigate too deeply are we wise in dissecting motives or would it not be better to enjoy our moral as we do our material health without seeking to assure ourselves further besides all this the untravelled englishman and such was glencore when he married 
never can be brought to understand the harmless levities of foreign life. Like a fresh-water sailor, he always fancies the boat is going to upset, and he throws himself out at the first jobble. I own to you frankly I never knew the case in question. How far she went is a secret to me. I might have heard the whole story. It required some address in me to escape it. But I do detest these narrations, where truth is marred by passion, and all just inferences confused and confounded with vague and absurd suspicions. Glencore's conduct throughout was little short of insanity. Like a man who, hearing his banker is insecure, takes refuge in insolvency, he ruins himself to escape embarrassment. They tell me here that the shock has completely deranged his intellect, and that he lives a life of melancholy isolation in that old castle in Ireland. How few men in this world can count the cost of their actions, and make up that simple calculation, how much shall I have to pay for it? Take any view when pleases of the case. Would it not have been better for him to have remained in the world and of it? Would not its pleasures, even its cares, have proved better distractions than his own brooding thoughts? If a man have a secret ailment, does he parade it in public? Why, then, this exposure of a pain for which there is no sympathy? Life, after all, is only a system of compensations. Wish it to be whatever you please, but accept it as it really is, and make the best of it. For my own part, I have ever felt like one who, having got a most disastrous account of a road he was about to travel, is delightfully surprised to find the way better and the inns more comfortable than he looked for. In the main, men and women are very good. Our mistake is expecting to find people always in our own humor. Now, if one is very rich, this is practical enough, but the mass must be content to encounter disparity of mood and difference of taste at every step. There is, therefore, some tact required in conforming to these irregularities, and unhappily everybody has not got tact. You, charming princess, have tact, but you have beauty, wit, fascination, rank, all that can grace high station and all that high station can reflect upon great natural gifts, that you should see the world through a rose-tinted medium is a very condition of your identity, and there is truth as well as good philosophy in this view. You have often told me that if people were not exactly all that strict moralists might wish, yet that they made up a society very pleasant and livable withal, and that there was also a floating capital of kindness and good feeling quite sufficient to trade upon, and even grow richer by negotiating. 
people who live out of the world or what comes to the same thing in a little world of their own are ever craving after perfectibility just as in time of peace nations only accept in their armies six-foot grenadiers and gigantic dragoons let the pressure of war or emergency arise however or in other words let there be the real business of life to be done then the standard is lowered at once and the battle is sought and won by very inferior agency now show troops and show qualities are very much alike they are a measure of what would be very charming to arrive at were it only practicable oh that poor glencore had only learned his lesson instead of writing nonsense verses at eton the murky domesticities of england have no correlatives in the sunny enjoyments of italian life and john bull has got a fancy that virtue is only cultivated where there are coal fires stuff curtains and a window tax why then in the name of doctors commons does he marry a foreigner just as upton had written these words his servant presented him with a visiting card lord glencore exclaimed he aloud when was he here his lordship is below stairs now sir he said he was sure you'd see him of course show him up at once wait a moment give me that cane place those cushions for my feet draw the curtain and leave the aconite and ether drops near me that will do thank you some minutes elapsed ere the door was opened the slow footfall of one ascending the stairs step by step was heard accompanied by the labored respiration of a man breathing heavily and then lord glencore entered his form worn and emaciated and his face pale and colorless with a feeble uncertain voice he said i knew you'd see me upton and i wouldn't go away and with this he sank into a chair and sighed deeply of course my dear glencore you knew it said the other feelingly for he was shocked by the wretched spectacle before him even were i more seriously indisposed than and were you really ill upton asked glencore with a weakly smile can you ask the question have you not seen the evening papers read the announcement on my door seen the troops of inquirers in the streets yes sighed he wearily i have heard and seen all you say and yet i bethought me of a remark i once heard from the duke of orleans monsieur upton is a most active minister when his health permits and when it does not he is the most mischievous intriguant in europe he was always straining at an antithesis he fancied he could talk like st simon and it really spoiled a very pleasant converser and so you have been very ill said glencore slowly as though he had not heeded the last remark 
so have i also you seem to me too feeble to be about glencore said upton kindly i am so if it were of any consequence i mean if my life could interest or benefit any one my head however will bear solitude no longer i must have some one to talk to i mean to travel i will leave this in a day or so come along with me then my plan is to make for brussels but it must not be spoken of as i want to watch events there before i remove farther from england so it is all true then you have resigned said glencore perfectly true what a strange step to take i remember more than twenty years ago your telling me that you'd rather be foreign secretary of england than the monarch of any third-rate continental kingdom i thought so then and what is more singular i think so still and you throw it up that the very moment people are proclaiming your success you shall hear all my reasons glencore for this resolution and will i feel assured approve them but they'd only weary you now let me know them now upton it is such a relief to me when even by a momentary interest in anything i am able to withdraw this poor tired brain from its own distressing thoughts he spoke these words not only with strong feeling but even imparted to them a tone of entreaty so that upton could not but comply when i wished for the secretaryship my dear glencore said he i fancied the office as it used to be in olden times when one played the great game of diplomacy with kings and ministers for antagonists and the world at large for spectators when consummate skill and perfect secrecy were objects of moment and when grand combinations rewarded one's labor with all the certainty of a mathematical problem every move on the board could be calculated beforehand no disturbing influences could derange plans that never were divulged till they were accomplished all that is past and gone our constitution grown every day more and more democratic rules by the house of commons questions whose treatment demands all the skill of a statesman and all the address of a man of the world come to be discussed in open parliament correspondence is called for despatches and even private notes are produced and while the state you are opposed to revels in the security of secrecy your whole game is revealed to the world in the shape of a blue book nor is this all the debaters on these nice and intricate questions involving the most far-reaching speculation of statesmanship are men of trade and enterprise who view every international difficulty only in its relation to their peculiar interests national greatness 
honor, and security are nothing. The maintenance of the equipose by which preserves peace is nothing. The nice management which, by the exhibition of courtesy here or force there, is nothing compared to alliances that secure us ample supplies of raw material and abundant markets for manufacturers. Diplomacy has come to this, but you must have known all this before you accepted office. You had seen where the course of events led to, and were aware that the house ruled the country. Perhaps I did not recognize the fact to its full extent. Perhaps I fancied I could succeed in modifying the system, said Upton cautiously. A hopeless undertaking, said Glencore. I'm not quite so certain of that, said Upton, pausing for a while as he seemed to reflect. When he resumed, it was in a lighter and more flippant tone. To make short of it, I saw that I could not keep office on these conditions, but I did not choose to go out as a beaten man. For my pride's sake, I desired that my reasons should be reserved for myself alone. For my actual benefit, it was necessary that I should have a hold over my colleagues in office. These two conditions were rather difficult to combine, but I accomplished them. I had interested the king so much in my views as to what the foreign office ought to be that an interchange of letters took place and his majesty imparted to me his fullest confidence in disparagement of the present system. This correspondence was a perfect secret to the whole cabinet, but when it had arrived at a most confidential crisis, I suggested to the king that Cloudsley should be consulted. I knew well that this would set the match to the train. No sooner did Cloudsley learn that such a correspondence had been carried on for months without his knowledge, views stated, plans promulgated, and the king's pleasure taken on questions, not one of which should have been broached without his approval and concurrence, that he declared he would not hold the seals of office another hour. The king, well knowing his temper, and aware what a terrific exposure might come of it, sent for me, and asked what was to be done. I immediately suggested my own resignation as a sacrifice to the difficulty and to the wounded feelings of the duke. Thus did I achieve what I sought for. I imposed a heavy obligation on the king and the premier, and I have secured secrecy as to my motives which none will ever betray. I only remained for the debate of the other night, for I wanted a little public enthusiasm to mark the fall of the curtain. So that you still hold them as your debtors? asked Glencore. Without doubt I do. My claim is a heavy one. And what would satisfy it? If my health would stand England, said Upton leisurely. I'd take a peerage, but as this murky atmosphere would suffocate me, and, 
as I don't care for the latter, without the political privileges. I have determined to have the garter. The garter? A blue ribbon? exclaimed Glencore as though the insufferable coolness with which the pretension was announced might justify any show of astonishment. Yes, I had some thoughts of India, but the journey deters me. In fact, as I have enough to live on, I'd rather devote the remainder of my days to rest and the care of this shattered constitution. It is impossible to convey to the reader the tender and affectionate compassion with which sir horace seemed to address these last words to himself do you ever look upon yourself as the luckiest fellow in europe upton asked glencore no sighed he i occasionally fancy i have been hardly dealt with by fortune i have only to throw my eyes around me and see a score of men richer and more elevated than myself not one of whom has capacity for even a third-rate task so that really the self-congratulation you speak of has not occurred to me but after all you have had a most successful career look at the matter this way glencore there are about six say six men in all europe who have a little more common sense than all the rest of the world i could tell you the names of five of them if there was a supreme boastfulness in this speech the modest delivery of it completely mystified the hearer and he sat gazing with wonderment at the man before him End of chapter forty four